Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my conversation with Mark Bittman on animal vegetable junk. First, wanted to remind you about booksonpod.com. It's where you can hear all of our episodes as well as subscribe to the podcast via Apple, Spotify, and plenty of other platforms. And give us a follow on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at BooksOnPod. This is Bill Buford. I'm the author of Dirt. I have spent a wonderful, intense, intelligent afternoon with Trey talking about my book for Books on Pod. Hello, readers. Mark Bittman is the author of 30 books, including How to Cook Everything. He was a New York Times columnist for more than two decades and hosted four TV series, including the Emmy-winning Years of Living Dangerously. Currently, he's on faculty at Columbia University and is the editor-in-chief of Heated. His newest book, which we're discussing today, is Animal Vegetable Junk, a history of food from sustainable to suicidal. Mark, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? I'm doing okay. How are you doing? Doing very well. Thank you very much. So, Mark, this book does a great job of going back and examining the history of our relationship with food. And it started as one where humans were consuming plants and animals and eventually gets into junk foods, really starting up in the 1900s. Prior to that, though, the Neolithic or first agricultural revolution occurred from around 10,000 years ago and ended 6,500 years ago. While incredibly important for mankind, there is also a line of thinking that you explore in this book that it's one of the worst mistakes in human history. What were some of those negative consequences? Well, I think the primary negative consequence was that when we became sedentary and started doing agriculture, This spiral began where we grew more food and population grew. And so we needed to grow more food and population grew further and so on. And as people became sedentary, fewer and fewer crops were being grown. I think people naturally did what the land told them to do. They farmed in accordance with what made sense to farm. And our diets became actually more limited. And so The result was that people actually developed more infectious diseases that also came about because people were living with or near animals and animals can spread disease as we know. And also because we were growing one or two crops or several crops at a time, but people ate the same foods over and over again. So while hunters and gatherers had very, very varied diets that obviously Their diets weren't guaranteed. They had to work to get food. But when they were able to get food, there was a wide variety of food, whereas agriculturalists had much more limited diets. And that led to both famine and malnutrition, which were common occurrences throughout history. I mean, there's a whole range of stuff. You could argue that agriculture, by developing surpluses, agriculture developed was responsible for the onset of a ruling class and elitism and different kinds of prejudice, gender prejudice. And all of that was a result of what we call civilization. And civilization was a direct result of agriculture. So in a way, you can blame agriculture for everything. I feel like that's carrying things a bit far. But a lot of the point of animal vegetable junk is not to say that food and agriculture have been responsible for everything that's wrong with society today, but that 
food and agriculture have played a big role in the way that society has developed. And it's a role that we don't pay enough attention to. And then if we want to build a better world and have a brighter future, then one of the most important things for us to address is how we grow and process and eat food. I think a lot of us would agree that we lost our way. And while that did happen hundreds of years ago, if not tens of hundreds of years ago, we're going to focus mostly starting in the 1900s and going forward. Farming became much more industrialized in the early 1900s, thanks in large part to the introduction of the motorized tractor. As you point out, in 1850, one farm and one horse needed 75 hours to produce one bushel of corn. In 1930, that same amount took 15 hours with modern technology. There were already 37,000 tractors on farms when the Model T was introduced in 1916. How did this impact our food supply really beginning in the early 1900s? Well, we began clearing land at an incredible rate, an unprecedented rate, I should say. And we began more and more growing one crop at a time and producing that crop for surplus and we transitioned into a cash food economy so food until let's say the 18th century anyway 19th century food was almost entirely grown to feed people either your family or your village or your region or whatever some of it was traded but most of it was not the tractor and other developments in the 19th century and early 20th century made it so that food could be grown increasingly as a cash crop. And then it was just up to people to find food to buy. There was less and less subsistence farming or farming food for people. And that got us to the point where there was so much of the crops that were able to be grown by using tractors and by growing on large tracts of land. Something had to be found to do with that surplus. And that was the beginning of hyper-processed food, industrialized food, and food that turns out not to be good for us. A lot of foods that we don't realize are at least minimally processed. When you go to the butcher at the grocery store, those cuts of meat that you are purchasing have been processed. So what is that line where a food goes from acceptably processed to hyper-processed and much worse for you? I think that if you don't recognize some of the ingredients, generally, if there are more than three or four ingredients in something, I mean, you could go so far as to say something that has a long label. I wouldn't necessarily say that meat is a processed food, but certainly the meat we eat today has very little in common to do with the meat that our ancestors ate. But much more nefarious, much more dangerous is the junk food that is dominant in our society. And that's food that didn't exist 100 years ago or wouldn't be recognized by people who were alive 100 years ago or has unknown ingredients on the label or ingredients that would never be cooked with in a normal kitchen and so on. I think that's where the line is, really. So one of the things that I enjoy about what you do in this book, Mark, is that you cover the causes of many famines throughout history, with unfortunately government policy almost always having a heavy hand in the starvation. How was this the case with the infamous Dust Bowl in the 1930s? Let's just be clear that famines occurred naturally until the 19th century and were one of the consequences of agriculture, as we talked about a few minutes ago. But starting in the 19th century, 
Brahmins became political. And the first well-known of those was the so-called Irish potato famine. The Dust Bowl wasn't as much a famine as it was a terrible ecological disaster. And it goes back in a way to the tractor that we were talking about. The tractor made it possible to clear land quickly that hadn't been cleared before. And the prairie, it took thousands and thousands of years for the buffalo grass to grow in the prairie. And that grass rooted the soil, it nurtured the soil. Obviously the buffalo that were on that soil nourished the soil also, but the grass kept the soil stable because the prairie as we know, has strong winds. And without that grass, the winds would blow that soil away. Well, we killed the buffalo, and then we proceeded to dig up the buffalo grass. And suddenly the soil was exposed, and the prairie got settled during a period of unusually mild weather, more rain than usual, calmer winds than usual. When the winds returned, a great deal of that grass was gone and the soil was exposed to this harsh, normal climate of the prairie and it started to blow away and crops started to fail. And that occurred at the same time as the depression, which was a terrible coincidence, a disastrous coincidence. And literally millions of people lost their farms. And that was, what, 80 years ago, 90 years ago. How did the hamburger become a staple of the American way of life? The hamburger we can think of as three or four different ingredients, and they all basically come from the kind of surplus that I've talked about. When we had a surplus of wheat, it became more difficult to make the most common wheat product is obviously bread. And when we had a great deal of wheat, it became more difficult to make products that used whole grain, whole grain bread and other products. And it became easier and easier to strip wheat of its most vital components, which are the bran and the germ, and create white flour, which is much more shelf-stable than whole grain flour. It's easier to ship. It's easier to produce bread with. And what you got was this white bread that started to dominate American diets. There was a point at which Americans were getting 25% of their calories from white bread. So that's one aspect of the surplus. Another is that we started to produce so much food that we had more and more and more cattle. There was a time when there were almost as many cattle in the United States as there were people. So we had a surplus of grain. We started feedlots. We started moving cattle around the Midwest. Obviously, I'm telling this story in a pretty abbreviated fashion. And the 40% of a cow that's edible, of that 40%, about half is ground meat. So now you have way more burgers than you know what to do with. And cheese came from the same kind of surplus. We had millions of dairy cattle. We had way more milk than we knew what to do with. And we started producing not the kind of cheese that had been produced historically, but essentially fast food cheese, craft singles, you might call (laughs) them just for shorthand. And the combination of those three things, ketchup is another thing, but let's just keep it to cheese, bread, and ground meat. The combination of those three things made the hamburger and fast food followed soon thereafter. I did want to actually ask 
separately about ketchup because I despise ketchup. My six and four year old <laughs> at home, they love ketchup, and I try really hard not to judge them when they eat ketchup with French fries because just strikes me as a low-quality product, and unfortunately for them, your book justified that. How did ketchup initially come to be, and what did Henry J. Hines do to make it much more palatable and uh, something that people were much more intrigued to purchase? Well, I don't know about the latter. Ketchup was really, really popular, and it was made at the beginning from sweepings off the factory floor, from droppings or whatever was left after canning tomatoes. And Henry Hines had this idea of dominating the ketchup industry by creating a food label that would say what was in products. And that hadn't existed before that. And as it happened, most ketchup at that time had a preservative in it that is a chemical preservative. And Hines figured out at the same time as manipulating the federal government into creating this label, which the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906, the label accompanied that act. He created a kind of ketchup that did away with that preservative and increased the amount of sugar in ketchup, made it thicker, gloppier, and more sugary. So he came to dominate the industry because he was able to say that his ketchup was chemical-free, which technically it was. And It was, as it happened, much, much sweeter than existing ketchups. And that's the kind of ketchup that you and I and everybody else listening to this grew up with now. It's interesting that the initial iterations of ketchup were trying to mimic the fish sauce that was popularized in Eastern cultures. They really missed the mark on that one. Mark, I've always... Yeah, they sure did. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) I've always imagined Betty Crocker as a sort of grandmotherly type figure working hard to put meals on her family's table while gracefully teaching America how to cook. What was the real Betty Crocker like? Betty Crocker didn't exist, and Betty Crocker was a marketing ploy. It was an attempt to get women to think that, and a successful one, to get mostly women to think that convenience food was the easiest way to cook and the best way to cook. And part of this sort of early 20th century phenomenon was convincing cooks that processed food and canned ingredients and boxed ingredients and frozen ingredients were the desirable foods to eat and even the desirable way to cook. So you'd have canned green beans with cream of mushroom soup and canned fried onions or whatever as a so-called home-cooked meal. And that was a phenomenon of the Betty Crocker era, the first half of the 20th century mostly. The first recommended daily allowances, or RDAs, were issued in 1941. These provided an estimate for the calories, vitamins, and minerals that we needed to be healthy, but it also paved the way for big food to fortify, additionally market, and further profit on selling food. Are fortified foods and beverages that much better for you than those that are not infused with vitamins and minerals? No. In fact, fortified foods are, for the most part, junk food. And the reason food has to be fortified is because it's been the ingredients have been stripped of what was good in them in the first place. So adding vitamin D to milk is hardly a problem. But adding vitamins to children's breakfast cereal and claiming that it's part of a healthy breakfast when the dominant ingredient is sugar or 
hyper-processed carbohydrates and sugar borders on criminal. So, you know, if you're using vitamin D fortified milk as an example of fortified foods or vitamin C fortified orange juice, those are not the best examples. The best examples are what I call dessert as breakfast, breakfast cereals that are predominantly made of sugar, but have chemical vitamins added into them so that the claims can be made that they supply your minimum daily requirement or recommend a daily allowance of a variety of vitamins when in fact you're eating mostly sugar. And I think you pointed out that it's literally more sugar than what you would be consuming for dessert after dinner too, correct? Often, yeah. Breakfast cereal really is dessert as breakfast, dessert disguised as breakfast. And there's nothing illegal about that, which is part of the problem. Yeah. I guess it's probably inevitable that this junk food, these synthetic consumables, would eventually make their way to our smallest mouths. When and why did the formula that serves as a substitute for breast milk enter the mainstream, and does it come close to providing the nutrition of actual breast milk? Well, you know, the answers to a lot of these questions are the same. The problems occurred in the 20th century when there was a surplus and when marketing became sophisticated and when there were substitutes for real food that could be sold to people as better than the originals. So obviously breastfeeding takes a lot of work and it's easier in many ways to prepare a bottle from formula. But There is no substitute for breast milk, and many people couldn't afford formula, which is part of the problem also. But again, this was a marketing ploy that said the way you're doing things, the natural way, the old way is not as cool as the new way. And the new way involves buying a product and feeding it to your child. And food preferences are set when we're very, very young. So feeding children formula, much formula, contains added sugars, of course. Feeding children formula and then feeding children baby food is part of a process of hooking us on junk food practically from the time that we're born. And formula is a part of that process. Do you agree with the popular sentiment that a calorie is a calorie? Well, a calorie is a calorie because a calorie is defined as a measure of heat that's produced when energy is burned. But That doesn't mean that all food is created equal. A calorie is a measurement. It's like saying an inch is an inch. But an inch of cotton is different from an inch of wool. A calorie is a calorie because it's a measurement. But it doesn't mean that all calories have the same qualities. I think a lot of us took a home economics class or two in our junior high and or high school days. Where did this concept of home economics come from? Again, this is an early 20th century concept, and it came as a way of training housewives into using not only the new appliances, because remember that the gas stove and the electric refrigerator and so on were late 19th, early 20th century inventions, but as it turned out, 20th century foods. So Betty Crocker, who we were talking about a few minutes ago, was really aligned with the home economics movement in a way. And home economics was, a, in a way, it became another marketing ploy to teach housewives how to use the new canned 
frozen, boxed, processed ingredients. Soybeans had a ton of potential in the 1900s. As you point well, out, they still do. Yeah. They're really nutritious and they help with nitrogen levels in the soil. So, how they end up as an afterthought of the American diet by the latter half of the 20th century, despite becoming one of our most abundant crops that we grow? Almost no one eats soybeans directly. In Asia, they do. But here, almost all soybeans are grown either to make junk food or to make oil in which to cook junk food or for animal feed. That doesn't mean that soy is a bad food any more than corn is a bad food. No naturally occurring food is bad. It's what we do with them that matters. So if we're turning soy, which as you say, is a highly nutritious food and relatively easy to grow and does fix, like all legumes, fixes nitrogen in the soil. So is a sustaining crop in a way. If we were eating soybeans directly in the form of edamame or cooked soybeans or tofu or what have you, we would be improving our diet. But if we're turning soybeans into junk food or we're turning soybeans into processed oil in which to fry food or we're turning soybeans into animal feed, then we're not eating it directly and we're not getting the benefits of it. I saw a series of pictures recently, Mark, that showed how large chickens have become over the last 70 years. The 1950 chicken was like a quarter of the size of today's chicken. How did chickens seemingly quadruple in size over the past 70 years? The one word answer to that is antibiotics. And it's more complicated than that. A lot of it has to do with breeding. But antibiotics allowed us to farm chickens by the tens of thousands and breeding allowed us to breed bigger, bigger chickens and not caring about animal welfare allowed us to breed chickens that were largely breast meat that grew way, way faster than their ancestors. And that tolerated large doses of antibiotics to keep them from getting sick and in a way help them to grow faster. That's all mid 20th century Chicken farming is pretty much the mid-20th century phenomenon, as is much of growing animals in cap, not in captivity, but in close quarters in confinement. Chickens were the first. Cattle, of course, with the development of the feedlot and uh, pigs with the CAFO, a concentrated animal feeding operation, huge barns with tens of thousands of pigs or hundreds of thousands of chickens in them kept in super confined quarters. And that along with as a substitute or as part of uh, what we call gasoline these days is where a lot of our corn supply goes to. Yeah, the corn supply of Iowa is roughly divided among producing ethanol, producing animal feed and producing junk food. So imagine if those, I think it's 12 million acres of corn were used to produce real food for people. Iowa at one point was among the country's leading producers of both tomatoes and apples. So it's not as if Iowa is destined to produce corn and soybeans. Those are just the most profitable crops to grow there. Mark, the civil rights movement of the 1960s led to Richard Nixon in 1968 promising to, quote, get private enterprise into the ghetto. This led to 25 million being dispersed through the Equal Opportunity Loan Program, 
Who did this money go to, and how was it ultimately spent? There was a way in which Nixon was marginally well-intentioned, but what wound up happening is that the Small Business Administration began to give money to franchisees of fast food. And the money that Nixon promised would go toward improving life in the so-called ghetto went toward bringing fast food and more gasoline stations and things like that into cities. Fast food, obviously, or maybe not obviously, but fast food began and grew up with car culture. But in the 70s, it began to invade the cities as fast food companies discovered that foot traffic was even more profitable than car traffic. And some of that, at least, was supported by the Small Business Administration. In 1957, the American Heart Association found that diet, specifically fat content and total calories, increased chronic heart disease. But they neglected to factor in the impact of something that we've discussed throughout this conversation, sugar. In the years that followed, Groups like the Sugar Research Foundation went as far as misleading the public about sugar's role in the degradation of our health. Sugar is in a lot of processed and preserved foods nowadays, thanks in large part to high fructose corn syrup. When did high fructose corn syrup come to be and why has it perpetuated this junk food problem? I mean, it's funny because it goes back to your ketchup question. Ketchup was one of the first canned or bottled foods that contained sugar that wasn't traditionally sweet. High fructose corn syrup was a product of the 70s and a co-invention along with ethanol, a byproduct of the ethanol process originally. But the difference to our bodies between high fructose corn syrup and regular sugar is nil or almost nil. So that's not really the issue. The issue is that as we made more and more sweeteners available, manufacturers found that they could make their foods more appealing by making them sweeter. So sugar began to appear in things that were not traditionally sweet, like tomato sauce and salad dressing and breakfast cereal, for that matter. And now sugar is in the majority of packaged products, contain at least some sugar, and a great deal of them contain more sugar than any other ingredient. And that is absolutely to the detriment of our diet. I encourage anybody who has never tried this before to try and cut added sugar from your diet for the span of a week. You will literally go through physical withdrawal in most cases, showing that it is as addictive as certain hard drugs. Also, if you're buying packaged food, it's impossible to eliminate sugar from your diet. You can only attempt to eliminate sugar from your diet if you buy real food and cook it yourself. You can't really do it if you're buying food that's prepared by somebody else because almost every packaged food and almost all fast food contains sugar in some form. I mean, that burger we were talking about, the cheese, the bun, and the ketchup all contain sugar. And for all I know, there's sugar in ground meat in some fast food joints. There very well could be. And that's a part of the process, putting sugar into the foods. But people may not realize just how rampant and how detailed the food engineering process is that tries to make these hyper-palatable foods as addictive as humanly possible. What are some of the other things that these big food companies do to ensure that you continue coming back to their product over and over again? Well, this began in the post-war era and really matured in the 70s and 80s 
the sort of scientific analysis of what the hotspots in our brains are, what responds most readily to different tastes. And fast food, or not fast food, processed food companies began to explore using MRIs and using focus groups. And so both measured experiments and pragmatic experiments to determine what foods were most appealing to most people and then engineering the food so that it would hit those hot spots and make processed food so that it became literally irresistible. You know, I would never say that hyper-processed food, ultra-processed food, junk food, whatever you want to call it, I would never say that it doesn't taste good. It does taste good. It's engineered to taste good. It's engineered to appeal to our taste buds, but our taste buds are trained from the time this goes back to the formula discussion. Our taste buds are trained from the time that we're young to accept and embrace certain flavors. So it's both a natural and a trained process that's made it so that we are really susceptible to becoming almost addicted to junk food. And not just addicted, it's what happens when the blood sugar spikes, it causes you to get hungry again sooner. Like one of my weaknesses in terms of these junk foods is Reese's peanut butter cups. I love them, but I can actually tell the difference when I eat a Reese's peanut butter cup after dinner. I end up waking up hungry at some point overnight because the physiological response to that is craving more of that food much sooner than you would if you are eating mostly whole foods. That's really interesting. Um, yes, sugar especially, but hyper-processed foods in general. And, and in fact, our bodies don't really know the difference between a cookie and white bread. Both cause an insulin spike. Both go through your system and are converted to sugar quickly, or they are sugar to begin with. That sugar is first stored as glycogen, but we have a limited amount of glycogen that our body can store, and then it is stored as fat. So it's processed quickly. The insulin itself has a deleterious effect on our bodies. Too much insulin causes problems in itself, but it also causes weight gain and concurrently causes chronic disease like diabetes. GMOs are another result of the 20th century, and the original GMOs were hybrid seeds. What is the biggest problem with using GMO crops as part of our food supply? In a way, the biggest problem is a broken promise, but that's sort of vague. The biggest problem is that GMOs were supposed to increase yield and decrease pesticide use. But what's happened is yield has remained stable and pesticide use has increased. So although you could argue that genetically engineered crops allow for more targeted pesticide use, that really hasn't been the case. And pesticide use has grown with the advent of GMOs. And it's worth pointing out that the pesticide glyphosate, that's the primary ingredient in Roundup, which is the pesticide that's used most as a result of genetically engineered corn and soybeans, is a carcinogen. And Monsanto is currently on the losing end of a number of lawsuits by farmers and even gardeners who've used Roundup and developed cancer. And this is what I mean by a broken promise. Rather than targeting the crops specifically and decreasing pesticide use, 
so far genetic engineering has just led to increased pesticide use. And, you know, everybody knows, although you might not think about the suffix side, suicide, homicide, fratricide, pesticide, it all means killing. It all means death. And a pesticide is an agent of death. It's a chemical killer. And you can claim that it targets one species and it may mostly target one species, but you are still creating a chemical whose goal is to kill things. And we shouldn't be surprised that those kinds of chemicals turn out to be carcinogenic or harmful in other ways. I think it's pretty well proven at this point that Roundup... Yeah, it's been known for 80 years, 100 years. Glyphosate is truly one of the most harmful poisons that has been released on the general public in the last 100 plus years now. Considering the technology's precision... Are you more encouraged with the prospect of GM crops that have been modified using CRISPR other than the hybrid seeds? You know, I think the jury is out. I'm not in principle against genetic engineering. It just hasn't delivered so far. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the thing is that normally under many circumstances, when a new technology is a great technology, it takes off. And so far, genetic engineering has only taken off insofar as it's been profitable. It really hasn't been of great benefit. So it's potentially fine. It's really another form of hybridization, a more sophisticated form of hybridization. And hybrid seeds have been beneficial. But so far, genetic engineering has really not been. You spend the final part of this book talking about what we can do for a better future People in the United States are pretty guilty of overeating food. Do we also overproduce food? We've talked about the surplus since the beginning of this conversation. So we overproduce the wrong kinds. I don't think anyone's guilty of anything as far as eating goes. We overproduce the wrong kinds of food, and that causes our food supply to be dominated by food that isn't good for us. An estimated 60% of our food supply is of ultra-processed, hyper-processed, what I call junk food, what we call junk food. And someone's eating those calories. Now, it's not our fault if we're eating food that's in the food supply that isn't good for us. What we need to do is adjust what's being produced and regulate what's being produced so that it's easier for people, more affordable for people, to eat good food, real food, than it is for us to eat junk food. I seem to hear this statement fairly regularly. Has our produce lost significant nutritional value over the last several decades? And if so, why? The answer is probably yes, but that's not our major problem with our diet. But it could become so, and that's a climate change issue because carbon is replacing other nutrients in crops. So This is an ongoing and developing story. It's not a reason not to eat fruits and vegetables, but it is a reason to be concerned about the future of agriculture. Is eating organic legitimately better for you? Well, eating organic is really better for farm workers because the fewer pesticides that are used, the better it is for farm workers. And that's the primary reason for eating organic. But there are, of course, fewer pesticide residues in organic food than there are in non-organic food. So that's a second 
reason for eating organic. But let me say this. Our diet is so screwed up that organic is not the first concern of most eaters. The first concern of most eaters is getting rid of junk food, and that includes sugar. The second concern of most eaters is eating fewer animal products. And the third concern of most eaters is eating more food from the plant kingdom. Organic is a good choice, but it's not the top priority because organic junk food is still junk food, just like vegan junk food is still junk food. The first important thing in our diets is to cut way back on sugar and other junk food. And then it's time to worry about other concerns. Is eating mostly local a truly viable option for most people? And what does locally sourced mean to you, Mark? I mean, it's a viable alternative for people who have time and money, because if you go to the supermarket, you are mostly not going to find local food. But belonging to a CSA, a community-supported agriculture, or shopping in a farmer's market is a way to eat local food. And most of us who can afford it can do that. It is viable. It's even becoming easier for people who don't have a lot of money to shop in farmer's markets because USDA has some pilot programs that make it possible to use food stamps, SNAP dollars at farmer's markets. So this is increasingly an alternative. And yes, it's important. And yes, it's something that we should support, supporting local farms who are growing real food, which are growing real food is a good thing. And eating locally is a good thing because no one is producing Oreos in your neighborhood, by the way. (laughs) So if you're eating locally, it means you're not eating junk food for the most part. It's not impossible, obviously, to eat locally produced junk. But for the most part, if you're shopping in farmer's markets, if you're buying from a CSA, if you're cooking your own ingredients, you're probably not eating a lot of junk food. So eating locally means more of avoiding junk foods than it does defining the foods as having been grown within a certain proximity of where you live? No, no, but I'm saying, I'm not saying that. I'm saying there are two benefits. One is that you're supporting local food and the other is that you're eating less junk. So how do you define locally sourced then? I don't really mind whether you define it as something from within a 25-mile radius or something within a 200-mile radius. Let's say that it's within a day's drive. How's that? Yeah, I think that's a great definition there. What do we need to do to correct how we grow and what we eat? Well... We need to make big changes and we need to make big changes long term. In the short term, I think we need to make smaller but achievable changes that are high impact. So let's say there are four components of what a good food system would be. A good food system would make food affordable, make food nutritious, make food fair. That is that it would be produced by people who are treated well and produced without torturing animals, and it would make food green. That is, let's say, sustainable. There are moves we can make in each of those four areas in the short term that would improve the food system. For example, we came very close to passing a $15 an hour national minimum wage in the last few days, and that would improve the fairness component of our food system. 
if we enforced regulations around pesticides or strengthened regulations around pesticides, if we strengthened regulations around the emissions from factory farms, then we would be making food greener. If we enhanced the food stamp, the SNAP program, if we expanded it, if we made it more available to more people, we'd be making the food system fairer. We would be making nutritious food more accessible to more people. So each of these kind of seemingly small steps goes toward making more equitable, more just, more fair food system. Once we start, we can evaluate some of these changes and begin to see what the best next changes are. We can't go from the kind of food system we have now, which is a food system that's built largely for profit, to a food system that says, let's make nutritious food affordable for everybody. We can't do that overnight or in a year or even in a decade. But we can start moving in the right direction and we can start seeing what the path ahead looks like. And finally, Mark, you admit in the acknowledgments that this book is ever evolving, but you had a deadline to meet. If you could add one thing to animal vegetable junk, what would it be? It's a good question. I was a journalist or I have been a journalist for more than 40 years. And there comes a point in the life of every story where you have to turn it in. (laughs) And that's what happened with this book. So What I'd like to add is the developments that have happened in the last few months since I finished it. The election has changed our outlook on agriculture. I mentioned the $15 an hour minimum wage. There's a bill in front of the Senate right now sponsored by Cory Booker and two other senators to begin to make reparations for the injustices uh, against Black farmers of the 19th and 20th centuries. All of this stuff It's an ongoing story, and it's a story that continues to be told. I'm going to continue to take a part in telling it, but I'm not sure what form that's going to take next for me. We're all luckier for that, too. Nice of you to say so. Oh, I mean it, man. It's always a pleasure getting to speak with you. Mark Bittman is the author of 30 books, including How to Cook Everything. He was a New York Times columnist for more than two decades and hosted four TV series, including the Emmy-winning Years of Living Dangerously. Currently, he's on faculty at Columbia University and is the editor-in-chief of Heated. His newest book, which we discussed today, is Animal Vegetable Junk, A History of Food from Sustainable to Suicidal. Mark, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this book. Well, thanks, Trey. And anytime you want to talk about food or sports, let me know. And thanks to you for listening. Check out all of our episodes and subscribe to this podcast at booksonpod.com. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave a five-star rating and a review. Helps us grow the show. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod.